worship, doubt, disciple. These are the three words that came to me as I read the text that Rita just read for us this morning. Three words that have something in common. A couple of things, actually. First, they're all found in the text today, as I said. The text that is sometimes called the Great Commission. And they are all both nouns and verbs, although only two of them are usually used as as verbs. Um, And they're going to be the words that I'm using to focus our time together today. But first, something about uh, that title, the Great Commission, or as I have been calling it in my head this week, and sometimes out loud, the Not-So-Great Commission. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Not so great because people like Waziatuin, who came to us last year, a Dakota woman from southwest Minnesota, and she said to us very pointedly, these words do violence. Was, her ancestors, and many others like them have been victims and survivors of these words wielded like weapons. This passage from Matthew is the primary scripture on which the doctrine of discovery was based. The doctrine of discovery, which permitted and encouraged the genocide and removal of indigenous peoples from their land and the resources from indigenous lands all over the world by European colonizers and settlers, This doctrine from which we, at least we ethnic Mennonites, must not distance ourselves simply because of our own martyred history or because we weren't directly involved with violence. My ancestors did not fire the guns or wield the swords, but their farms were built on stolen land from which indigenous people were forcibly removed or killed, and my ancestors' plows tore up habitat that had been sustaining communities of creation for millennia. It is important to acknowledge the harm that this scripture has done and does in the world. After hearing from Waz, I don't know that I'll ever think of this as the Great Commission again. I do think that there can be a little good in it. There is at least invitation, an invitation to worship, to doubt, and to disciple. First worship. The 11 have retreated. They have gone to the place where Jesus instructed them that that he would meet them, and they found him there. The first action they do when they meet Jesus on the mountain, their immediate response is worship. Our congregation does many things. We are active in the world. Each of us is active in many and varied communities, doing justice, making peace, seeking God's dream for all creation. But our primary way of being gathered community, being the body of Christ, 
is in worship, is here in this place on Sunday mornings, or Thursday evenings, or Friday evenings, or Wednesday evenings. It is worshiping together as Jesus' people. When we worship together, we hear God's word. We focus our hearts and spirits on the person of who Jesus was and who Jesus is present with us. And with Christ as our focusing lens, we pray for each other. We pray for the world. We are shaped by the Spirit through scripture, study, song, common discernment. And we go from this place, this brief retreat, empowered to do all of the things that we do out there in the world. After the chaos and the trauma of their last week, after the chaos and trauma that we experience throughout our weeks, Jesus gave the disciples, gives us, an opportunity for retreat, for being away from the world to meet him, to be with each other, for they would have to return to the world to be leaders, preachers, healers, ministers, just as Jesus had been. And it's from this place of retreat that Jesus delivers these final instructions. They encounter him and they worship him. And at the very same time that the disciples fell down in worship of Jesus, they doubted. And not, as it is translated in most versions, some doubted, just they doubted. When they saw him, they worshipped him, and they doubted. I can't tell you how much hope that gives me. This isn't just one dude doubting named Thomas. This is, they doubted. And even if it's some, it's not, but even if it was just some, there they are with Jesus seeing him in the flesh. They have him apparently risen from the dead, encountering what is a miraculous resurrection, real and present before their eyes, and they doubted. So these 2,000 years later, I breathe a sigh of relief. Doubt is a familiar feeling. If we are honest, we are all doubters, are we not? Yes, I see some nodding. We are questioners, we are skeptics, agnostics, even, I dare say, an atheist or two among us. Universalists. We are skeptics and questioners, we doubt. And yet we worship together. Here in community, we worship Jesus and are formed by his life and his teaching. We hear the words of scripture and are formed by each other and the spirit. Doubt is a fact. And doubt did not stop Jesus from continuing the dialogue. Eugene Peterson, God bless him, says, Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and made his charge. Jesus is not deterred by doubt. Jesus is undeterred from calling his disciples to disciple. 
that verb that we rarely use as a verb. Now it's your turn, Jesus is telling them. One of the things that is very hard to hear in this text with contemporary ears, or at least with my ears, the thing that truly does feel violent is the make disciples, baptize all nations, obey everything I've commanded you. That doesn't feel like Jesus to me. Until you remember the kind of cat that Jesus was. The kind of cat that shows his little kittens how to be and what to do and where to go and when to rest. Jesus is a companion and a model for his disciples. And just as that little cat learns from the big cat, observing, matching pace, being a companion, Jesus disciples his disciples. He's calling them to travel around. Not go out, just travel around and disciple disciples of their own. It gets confusing and repetitive in English when you, you, know, you use it as both a noun and a verb. Uh, but there is a reason why we have in this congregation a discipleship council. The council that holds worship and Christian formation and caring for each other. Because discipling is what we do, what we're called to as Christians, to walk alongside each other with Jesus as our first discipler. Obey, commandment. I have to take a deep breath when I hear those words, too. We don't even really use the terminology of obey and obedience with our children anymore. We say instead things like, follow my instructions, or listen carefully, or pay attention. When, I mean, let's be honest, we mean just do what I say already. So what is the instruction, a.k.a. the commandment, that Jesus is asking us to listen carefully to? What is the everything I have commanded you that he's talking about? I want you to think about what is the commandment, any commandment that you've heard from Jesus. The only commandment that I can think of is not the Great Commission. It's in Matthew 22, and I'm sure you all know it, because a lawyer asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Obey everything I commanded you. Everything, in other words, two things. Love God, love other people. Disciple others in this way. These final instructions from Jesus are a reminder to Matthew's audience that they are not gatekeepers for God's dream of wholeness. They are not to withhold God's love inside their community and inside their walls. In fact, they are not to use love as a weapon 
to use Jesus as a weapon or a wall. It's not they who get to decide, gets to decide who should be a disciple, who should be baptized, who should be part of this great kingdom of God. It is invitation. It is not weapon. That hasn't prevented people from using it as a weapon. But Jesus has already told them that what love looks like, what discipleship looks like, is feeding, clothing, liberating, visiting, quenching thirst. So this passage has been used to do the worst violence in the worst ways, violence we can't undo. But we can be disciples. And I hope that we can undo something within ourselves, at least, that will enact healing instead of violence. When we come to the end of the passage, Jesus says, and I can't not hear it in the King James, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. On the one hand, I kind of hear this like um, like Jesus creeping on us, like Santa Claus or like Sting, like every breath you take. But also, actually, it's a promise. It's a promise, a promise of ongoing discipleship, ongoing commandment, ongoing companionship. Big cat to little cats. When we gather in worship with Jesus in our midst, the Jesus we've encountered through the entirety of Matthew, the Jesus who heals, who preaches abundance, who challenges temple authorities and empire, who turns over tables and appears first to women. Here in worship we encounter that Jesus, encouraging us, encouraging our continued love for God and for neighbor, encouraging our doubt and our skepticism, especially when our doubt is of systems that continue to oppress and the self-centering narratives that remain unexamined. The scripture has done violence. May we be disciples who continue to acknowledge land and not only that, build relationship, learn, volunteer through our time, return our resources through, uh, through things like real rent. May we be disciples who, through our worship and even through our doubt, understand the call to walk alongside all people, all nations, as vessels of God's love, discipled to us through Jesus. May it be so. Amen.